0: you're listening to sciencing the shit out of ms part of the classroom psychology network and now here's your host dr cora Sargent. hello everybody and welcome to sciencing the shit out of ms i'm your host cora thank you so very much for joining me it's wonderful to see you i hope you're doing well help on in here uh listen y'all i, I need to start today by talking about a story. I had a weird thing happen yesterday. I don't really know how to process it, so we're going to do it together. Uh, And so you know that weird stuff happens and you're going to feel weird too, I'm sure, and and maybe we can feel weird about it all together. But I was... Yes, I'm a doctor of educational psychology, right? So my primary job is supporting trainee educational psychologists through their doctorates. And as part of that process, I examine uh, doctoral vivas. So my job is to essentially kind of conduct examinations. They're little interviews. They look a bit like job interviews. And you basically ask a bunch of questions about the work that somebody's been doing for two years and they answer them. And so I was doing this in London and it was a wonderful experience, I had a great time. Um, and then I was on my way back. Now, I had to get the train home from Waterloo and it was really, really busy in Waterloo. I had my uh, dear friend and colleague with me who was basically being my carer uh, for the your time. I'm not used to having somebody like that in that role, but damn, I need someone like that these days. And, you know, he was incredible. We got onto the train. The train was super delayed. It was loads of cancellations. It was the only train going to Winchester. It was a good hour and a quarter on the train. And bearing in mind that I can be on my feet for about 30 minutes at absolute most without walking. If I'm walking, it's more like 12. And so we kind of made our way onto the train. I had my crutches and I had my cane with me and I had my heavy bag with me. It made it very difficult, but I was OK, right? I was all right. We got onto the train and i was wet i don't know how i got wet i'm pretty sure it wasn't me um but i'm pretty sure it was my bag i think my bag leaked onto me so i was like okay i need to clean this up, right? Like, I need to change, and I need to kind of deal with this." So I went into the toilet, and it took ages. Like, at that point, my legs just really wouldn't function. Uh, So I was, like, trying to lift them, and they really wouldn't lift. So I was lifting them by hand, and I don't even... I don't know. If you've ever tried to get changed in a tiny-ass bathroom by lifting, like, when your legs are essentially pool noodles, uh, (laughs) trying to move them by hand into and out of things is is fundamentally impossible. And I was sat there trying desperately to do this in the toilet. Um, Remarkable. I don't know what I was doing, really. So it was me trying to get my pool noodle legs into and out of clothes, And I got changed. I managed it. It was a success. I am brilliant. No problem. Even with a significant disability, I can get my ass changed in the tiniest bathroom in the world. Felt kind of proud of myself. Head on out into the train to go find my friend. Now, at this point, my legs are pool noodles. And I don't know if you've ever tried to walk on pool noodles, but they don't really. (laughs) It's not that easy. Uh, And I was like, I lost him. Uh, busy train. He's gone to go find seats. Uh, I know this, but I don't think he's going to have been able to save a seat for me. It's too busy. I don't even know if he'll have found two together. What are the chances? So I don't know where he is. Um, and I can't go searching for him. There's no way for me to go find him with pull noodle legs. Right? So there was me in the corridor of the train. There's no seats left and there's people standing in the corridor and there's me, you know, I've got my crutches, I've got my cane in in my sword case, right? Like, that's how I carry them. I carry them in a sword case because I can carry my crutches in one sleeve and my uh, cane in the other, and I can switch between them as I need. But there's no way I can, I can't use them right now. Like, it's too busy. And I have this heavy bag with me, and I'm in trouble. Like, I, I know I'm in trouble. Uh, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this circumstance, but I, I can't be in the situation that I'm in. So what I need to do is sit, right? I can sit pretty much anywhere. It's standing on pool noodles that I run into difficulty with. So if I sit and maybe there's an outside chance that the hour that it takes to, for the train to get back will give me enough kind of power back in my legs to get myself up again. If I sit on the floor, there's a reasonable chance I'm not getting the hell off the floor again, but hopefully give it an hour. Maybe we'll be all right. So there's me looking for a little space to sit, essentially, in the corridor. And I identify a space. It's pretty good. And there's this you know, very kind lady nearby who watches me kind of eye this space and head towards it. And she decides, she's like, hey, do you want me to see if I can find you a seat? Do you want me to ask if somebody would move? And I was like, no. I just said, you know, I, I." the answer to this question is to any, you know, to any person who is like of their right mind, the answer is yes, right. And for me, the answer is yes, but that's just not who I am. Like I, I realize that you know I, I don't like kind of treading on people's day, and I don't like the idea of shouting to people, "Hey, I've got a disability. Can anybody give up their seat?" That would have been the kind of right thing for me to do, I think, uh, given everything that was going on, but. I said no. I said no, and I was like, you know, and I would have been okay. It wouldn't have been ideal, but I think I would have been okay if I'd have been able to sit on the ground. And this lady kind of looked at me, and she was like, I'm sorry, I can't, you know. I, I, it was a weird moment where she was just, ap- she apologized. I'm sorry. Like, I cannot let this injustice stand. And she suddenly switched into this sort of slightly superhero, white knight kind of moment. And she just kind of stepped into the train carriage and shouted, "Like, has any, can anybody please give up their seat? I have a disabled woman here." And I was like, "Well, oh, I mean, I'm glad you're a know, trans woman over here. Super glad that I passed, apart from the else, because I don't know about you guys. Intersectionality is, it, I it has hit me like a truck in those moments where you know, I, I just, I, 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 I you know." I can't be having people see me as a disabled transgender person if I can at all vo- avoid it because the levels of discrimination, the vulnerability, I just can't have it. So I, you know, I know how vulnerable it feels. I feel for all you disabled trans folks with me. Uh, damn, you know, it's terrifying. Um, and she was at the like, can anybody give up their seat? You know, like she was freaking Gondor calling for aid, right? <laughs> like, like, well, no one answer the call and there was this awkward pause this awkward silence when nobody answered the call and there was me just kind of standing in this corridor like bent double like struggling to stand oh gosh it's just and I get what she was doing in in, and I kind of do deeply appreciate what she was doing but I, I you know 30 seconds ago I was a doctor of educational psychology you know inviting another doctor into the profession through an oral examination that virtually nobody ever goes through and it's challenging and I'm there because I'm an expert in my field and you know and the the, the person I was examining it was a you know a listener on classroom psychology and I was like it was like it was amazing I heard you were my examiner I listened to your podcast so I'm like ah oh, this is amazing and then like 30 seconds later I'm none of those things I'm just the disabled woman And I'm the only disabled people, person visibly disabled that I can see, you know, I'm the only person there. And this woman took it upon herself to help. And I appreciate what she did. Don't get me wrong. I really, really genuinely do. And hell, I did get a seat and I really deeply appreciate her for what she did. But she also kind of took my agency While the decision to not ask for help there was the wrong decision and clearly the wrong decision, it was still mine to make. I may be an asshole, but it's my right to be an asshole. (laughs) I may have neglected my own physical well-being, but it's my right to neglect my own physical well-being to make the wrong choice. And she took it away from me, you know? And I It feels very disempowering in those circumstances. You know, I'm not even capable of really standing up for myself. I'm capable of standing up, let alone standing up for myself. And then this awkward silence passes, right? Until this guy stands up in this train platform, right? This dude, he stands up. uh, And it's like this moment where it's like, it's like, I will, I will give up my seat. You know, he's like freaking... I don't know, Theoden of Rohan, you know, I will answer the call! And it's, it's really all the audience around can do not to applaud. But it's actually also kind of weird because nobody wanted to give up their seat. It's a long train journey. You know, nobody wants to do that. And everybody's hoping that someone will so they don't have to. And it's super, super awkward. And then this dude says, yes, I will answer the call. And he comes into the corridor. And I feel this kind of compulsion in the space, this sort of, I don't know, expectation from the people around, from this, I don't even know if from this guy's, guy looks super embarrassed as anything. But, you know, there was a weird expectation in the world that this guy was rescuing me and that I needed to engage in some lowest lane levels of swooning, right? Like, <laughs> it's this expectation that I would just like swoon over this guy. Thank you, kind hero ah carry me to my seat you know uh i don't know man so and you know intersectionality again you know i could have been like oh thanks lad uh, cheers mate <laughs> as i said i don't know what that would have don't know what that would have what would have happened um but i was careful you know i pitched my voice extra carefully and i was like you know, oh, thank you so much. What was your name, kind sir? You know, thanks so very much. Thank you. Ah, And I headed to my seat and I went to sit down and I like landed in the seat like I was built like Elon Musk, you know, with, with rapid unscheduled disassembly. <laughs> it's so difficult. You know, in those moments when I'm looking to be most feminine, <laughs> looking to be, looking to, you know, trying to hide essentially... You know, and I land with all the grace of an otter trying to serve himself wine at a dinner party. You know, I just crash into this this chair next to this dude. And I'm like, oh, oh, it's so bad. And I kind of get what everyone was doing. And I appreciate what everyone was doing. But I don't know, man. I just, I wasn't. I wasn't this doctor of educational psychology. I wasn't like the research director at a university. I I wasn't any of those things. I was the disabled woman who needed somebody to save her. And, you know, this woman stepped in and saved me. And then this dude stepped in and saved me. And they were both right. I sort of needed saving. But damn I hate that I needed saving. I cannot tell you. Maybe it's my own ableism, but I can't tell you how much I hate the idea that people have to rescue me. I'm an independent woman, damn it. And I do not like the idea that people had to rescue me and I do not like that I was in a situation where they did and then they did and I'm really appreciative and they were so kind. But God, I'm, (laughs) I'm an independent person, damn it. (laughs) <laughs> damn it, ah, I'm an independent person, Ah, I don't know you guys, that was, that was a weird day, it was a weird, weird day, long story short though, I got home, I got home, I nearly missed my stop because I was essentially unconscious in the seat, like my friend found me and banged on the outside window to let me know that my stop, he's like, you know, I wake up and I look outside and it's him standing outside the train waving at me. I'm Like, what are you doing out there? Oh, it's my stop. <laughs> it's a run out of the train. Oh, dear. And then, you know, my friend so kindly is like, hey, I'm going to go. You know, would you like me to get the car? And I'm like, no, I can walk home. And I yeah, I mean, I can't. And he knows I can't. But he's kind and he doesn't and he doesn't take my agency and he just is like, listen, if I were to offer getting the car, would you turn it down? <laughs> I don't know why that framing of the question made it more bearable, but it did. And I was like, no. <laughs> and he went and got the car. And it's me standing there, like leaning against this rock, like with a wet bag and my like, crutches on my back and, and just resigned to the realization that there's 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 no way I can get home without help. And just resigned to the realization that there's, I, there's a lot I can't do now without help. And, and I got to say, you know, I guess there are kind of two things here that I really appreciate, you know, the help that I had and, and, you know, (laughs) the help was so welcome. And, And there's been this piece of research that came out in the last couple of weeks that was, talking about like the helping of people there's this big piece of cross cultural research went around the world looking at helping in in all kinds of cultures and they found that the human propensity to help others is is universal doesn't matter where you're from doesn't matter what language you speak doesn't matter the culture of your heritage it's just it's just universal and that is beautiful right like i I appreciate that a great deal. And I appreciate all the help that I keep receiving from amazing people, uh, including that woman and, and everybody who helped me the last couple of days, just to kind of do all the basic things I needed to do to be able to continue to do my job. And I just really appreciate that. But there's also something about the help that we provide one another and and agency. The thing that that most gets taken from you when you have a disability is your agency, your ability to make decisions for yourself and to make things happen in the world around you and to have control of your own life. And it's so easy for other people to accidentally contribute to that by taking away your agency further. And I guess, I don't know, I guess I just wanted to appreciate that too, that there might be a way to do help that, you know, isn't perfect and maybe is less perfect and less efficient and less good, but it keeps people's agency alive. You know, Martin Seligman, like the, the Marty Seligman, the, I think it is Martin, but I think uh, Angela Duckworth calls him Marty. I don't know if I should call him Marty. I know they were on first name terms or anything. Never met the genius man that he is. But Seligman's like uh, the the father of positive psychology and He um, is his magnum opus, I think right now is on agency being at the heart of human flourishing. And Roy Baumeister was at the University of Sampton on Friday talking about agency again, being the source of human flourishing. And the risk with any disability is that it can undermine your agency. And when people help more than anything, and I don't know, That woman was right. I needed her help and I was wrong to decline it. And she stepped in and she was right to step in. But I don't know, maybe agency is something we also need to prioritize to make sure that people with disabilities have agency over their lives. The reason this story I think is quite important is that it's really the first time. I mean, it's not just that moment, you know, this whole trip. Uh, I needed a lot of help, I needed a lot of help, and we went out to a restaurant together and it was really nice, we spent the evening at an Italian restaurant, the eight of us all examiners together, kind of just enjoying each other's company, you know, since Covid hasn't been easy to do this, a lot of examinations have gone online, and it was just really nice to spend time with friends and colleagues, and you know, but we walked home, And we walked home. I had my sword case on my back with my cane and my crutches. We got about 12 minutes, about 700 meters. And I was gradually getting worse and worse in my mobility. So I switched to the cane. Uh, You know, my friend and colleague uh, was super kind. They um, They carried my case for me. So I wasn't even having to carry anything. And I switched to my cane and then it was guy. It kind of, i think there's a video game i can't remember the name of it but where something you know, you've got a you got your friend carrying all your swords and you just switch weapons by calling to your friend authority you and that's exactly what was happening with they were just like you know tossing me the the next uh the next thing i needed to stay on my feet uh just deepest appreciation um and you know another extra 200 meters, and then i started to stumble again so i switched to the crutches But the whole time i you know this is the first time i really felt like a disabled person you know this was really evident i was a disabled person now what's interesting to me is that identity becomes a real part of of learning to live with a disability and there's some really interesting research Uh, Headed up by The Seam of Things by Bogart. Bogart's work is really interesting about disability identity. Uh, Bogart is really cool in that they talk about the challenges of the modern field of research that hasn't really focused on disability identity until recently. Um, And they're one of the only authors in the field kind of writing about it as far as I can see. Uh, and they do write about multiple sclerosis. So 2015, uh, disability identity predicts lower anxiety and depression in multiple sclerosis in rehabilitation psychology. Um, it's really cool. They talked to 106 people with multiple sclerosis with difficulties walking and just over half used a wheelchair as their primary mode of travel. So they had quite, you know, quite significant disability. I'm on my way there now. And uh, they... Uh, one of the things that they found was that stronger disability identity predicted lower psychological distress. Now, that's kind of wild to me, right? Like, identity? Uh, But it turns out that it sort of makes sense. Bogart talks about... like self-concept being connected to self-efficacy and that when you develop a kind of disability self-concept, a sort of appreciation of your own disability and incorporate it into your identity, it frees you up to solve problems because they talk about, you know, when people first get diagnosed, people often go through a period of denial and rejection of the identity and then engage in what they describe as an attempt to pass as able, which, you know, I mean, talk about wild, what i find i have sort of stuck for words what i find so amazing here is that this has got such incredible parallels with an lgbtqia plus identity right you know the attempt to pass the rejection of the identity and eventually a sort of acceptance of where you are and who you are and then an ability to incorporate that new part of yourself into your identity and then gain a kind of self-efficacy, be able to solve problems, sort of push forward, you know, reach out for transition or reach out for support, and then to kind of um, become connected to the wider community, to engage in, you know, not just coming out, but coming together. And then, you know, being able to kind of use that opportunity to help other people in a similar situation and when it comes to identity, it seems that these two things are very, very similar. I think Bogart actually kind of draws the deliberate parallel between the two. And in fact, talks about in 2023, fascinating paper, disability is a social identity. It's time for therapy to affirm it. Really interesting. Bogart makes the deliberate kind of parallel between these two things. He says, you know, having a disability and being disabled is a part of somebody's identity. It can be a meaningful part of somebody's identity and therefore therapy, as a part of kind of helping people to affirm their identity, therapy can affirm people's disabled identity, help people to, you know, come out, I, right, you know, let people know, reach out for support, come together, you know, find other people in the community, You know, be part of the community, advocate for one another, push forward as a community, strive for public change, and then support one another. You know, reach out for support and offer support to other people in that community. And together, our kind of strength of of numbers can push for public change. Now, Bogart says at the heart of this is about sort of like challenging the view that disability is inherently pathological. Now, this is an interesting idea. And I think it's where we, right to the heart of what we need to talk about, is about the distinction between the medical model and the social model of disability, right? Now, the medical model of disability is kind of necessary. It's a model of disability that says that the reason that you are disabled, the reason that I am disabled, is because I cannot walk particularly well or because, you know, the nerves are damaged, therefore I have bladder incontinence issues, or because, you know, my optic nerve is damaged and I have a bit of a visual impairment in one eye. Uh, You know, those kind of, those are things that make me disabled. But the problem with that is that I also cannot fly, right? You know, we can't fly. We don't consider the inability to fly to be a disability. Now, why not? Right? The inability to defy the law of laws of gravity to kind of hurl myself into the air with all my force and just fly myself to work would be amazing, right? And the but the reason we don't see that as a disability is because the situation around us, the world, isn't set up to require people to fly, right? Because no one can fly. And this is the social model of disability, it suggests that everybody has different abilities. Like some people struggle with walking, some people struggle with bladder, some people struggle with all kinds of things, physical dexterity, or struggle with vision, vision or hearing, or you know what I mean? Like people have very different abilities, but what disables them is the expectation of the environment, right? If I'm in a wheelchair trying to get my ass around Winchester and I can't get into a shop because it doesn't have an accessible entrance, then what disables me isn't the wheelchair. And it isn't like, in fact, the wheelchair, quite the opposite, enables me to go around and do stuff. What disables me is the inability of the space, that shop, to be inclusive. That's the social model of disability. And Bogart says affirm affirmation like the affirmative model of care here affirmative care for people with disabilities is to affirm their identity and to help people to realize that being disabled is simply a part of human diversity it isn't inherently pathological and in fact can be quite positive because lots of people are disabled and by coming together as a community, we can challenge the social problems that disable us, right? If there's a group in society that is disabled by the circumstances of their environment, then we can prevent them from being disabled by that environment by making the environment more inclusive. And these have direct parallels with plus identities right so the non-binary community is one that i end up talking about a lot because we have men's rooms and we have women's rooms changing rooms toilets locker rooms all kinds of stuff all kinds of spaces that imply toilets that imply that male and female are the only ways of you know they're the only experiences that people have right that we've got men's and women's i was in a restaurant not that long ago and they had six cubicles all individual cubicles. Only one person goes in any one time, but three of them were male and three of them were female. Not for any reason, just because of this kind of understanding, this sort of social understanding that men and women are all that exist in the world. But the non-binary community are disabled by that environment, right? Because where do they pee? So we have this interesting circumstance where, you know, to some extent... People who are non-binary become disabled by that experience. And by restrictive policy, we find that, you know, people of LGBTQIA plus people are disabled by their environments. And that's not because they're disabled, but because the environment like prevents them from existing within it. So there are kind of really interesting parallels here, and I find it kind of fascinating, not least because, you know, damn it, I had to come out as trans and and I had to kind of go through a process of uh, understanding my identity. And for sure, you know, I spent a long time denying that identity. I spent a long time trying to fit in and just trying to be a boy in the world. And then gradually I realized that I, I couldn't do that because I wasn't one. You know, people sometimes ask me, you know, what is it about being a girl that you like so much? And for sure, there's lots of things about being a girl that I like, but I it's not that I like being a girl. It's just that I experience myself to be one. And everything else just kind of falls into place because, you know, that's who I am. And then I had to come out, right? I had to tell people I was trans and I had to engage in transition. I had to kind of learn to be a transgender woman in the world. And now I do still even try to fit in. I try to hide who I am. You know? I don't tell people. But then over time, I've become more and more comfortable with telling people. Even your good selves out there, as welcoming as I know you to be. You know, I don't bother pitching my voice up that carefully with you, right? And, and that's because I've become more comfortable being an openly transgender woman in the world. And now it seems from Bogart's work That maybe the same thing needs to happen with a disabled identity. I need to become okay with the idea that I am disabled. Stop seeing disability as inherently negative or inherently pathological, because that's kind of ableist. And instead to see it as potentially positive, I can maybe help other people who have a disability and maybe, maybe we can help one another. And I can be part of that community and together we can strive for public change and try to create circumstances where we're less disabled by our environments. That would be cool. I think I'm open to it. Now there is some other cool research around here about identity that I thought it'd be really fun to work with. The there's the first is by Wieringer, uh, Dale Eccles in 2022, adjusting to living with Parkinson's disease. Now they looked at a meta ethnography. Now it's a kind of niche little, uh, mode of systematic review they basically searched all of the literature brought it all together and engaged in a very specific kind of synthesis of that literature bringing it together and trying to learn from the whole field now these guys come up with this really interesting idea they talk about kind of acceptance and identity as being part of an equilibrium which is like a balance of good illness management feeling good about yourself and about the world and like minimizing the interference that the disability imposes upon your life, right? Now, minimizing that interference is largely by creating inclusive spaces, right? A lot of the way around, because if people are, you know, if I'm rolling around town in my wheelchair and I can't get into a shop, then... The illness has interfered with my life, but it's not really the illness interfering. It's not the disability. It's the environment that has caused the disability to interfere. So it's really the environment's fault. <laughs> Blame the environment um, for sure. And they talk about adjustment as being part of developing an identity, like developing a disabled identity. They talk about, like, individuals acknowledging what is wrong, accepting both the diagnosis and its implications, and then accommodating it into one's self-concept. And then, you know, you allowing that to kind of give you self-efficacy, taking agency, changing your environment to prevent it disabling you and helping other people. You know, this is all about kind of developing a sort of complete disabled identity in the world, which I think is kind of cool. Now, finally, this is a really interesting piece of research by Calcius and colleagues. Now, in 2015, they th- this paper, Rock and Freaking Wrong, they call it, How to Conquer a Mountain with Multiple Sclerosis, How a Climbing Expedition to Machu Picchu Affects the Way People with MS Experience Their Body and Identity, A Phenomenological Analysis. Whew. Phenomenological analyses effectively look at a particular phenomenon. Uh, in this case, climbing Machu Picchu and take lots of different perspectives of it from different people experiencing it and ponder the relationship between them. You know, what is there? What brings the What like makes those experiences unique and what brings them together and makes them similar to one another? And there's some really cool stuff in here. Basically, what they did is they took a bunch of people with multiple sclerosis and they gave them heavy duty training as a course you'd need and you know there's a caveat here they had an edss score which is a sort of um enhanced disability scale uh score Uh, and it basically says you know uh, how how disabled is this person they had an edss of five or less so they could walk 500 meters independently which i suppose makes life a bit easier and they basically trained them in climbing a mountain and then they climbed a mountain And what I find really interesting is that it kind of pushed people's limits. And as a consequence, people recalibrated what they were capable of. So their disability had impacted on their identity, or at least their environments kind of... This is what I find fascinating, right? So what they had found, I think, is that people with multiple sclerosis are so frequently disabled by their environments that they become decalibrated. They become... You know, they they underestimate what they're capable of because their environments disable them so frequently they start to kind of think of themselves as more disabled than they are, right? And for sure, I'm disabled, for sure. I don't know if I could climb Machu Picchu, but I can buy the idea that I'm this, like that experience on the train I was pretty disabled by the fact the train was so busy, there were no disabled seats reserved for people with disability. There was no, you know, no accommodation made for people with disabilities as far as I could see. And so I was disabled by the environment and somebody needed to step in to rescue me, but that's not the MS, that's the environment. All I needed was a chair for people with disabilities, thanks very much, and then I would have been fine. right? So the environment disables us so frequently that we start to think of ourselves as more disabled or less able to do things than we should be because the environments aren't as inclusive as they can be. And what they did in, you know, in creating this context, which was as inclusive and supportive as it could possibly be, it helped people to recalibrate. So some brilliant quotes in here. If someone had told me before, this is a person with MS who climbed Machu Picchu, I would never have believed him, but I really did it. I started and finished, and now I can do so much more. I have so many more dreams. How cool is that quote? This one again. My husband expressed in the right way how I see it myself. I am again who I once was, but in a different way. I'm more than I was before. So cool. These folks, like this environments and doing things that you once thought impossible changes your relationship with yourself and your body, and it changes your relationship between the how disabled you experience yourself to be because it's the environment that is disabling us. This is what's super interesting to me, so you know this kind of this kind of experience that I had yesterday or the day before when I was on the train you know, damn, that experience disabled me. But if we come together as a community, if we find each other and with one voice are like shout for the world to be more inclusive, we can change the world, make it more inclusive and therefore like recalibrate what we're actually capable of. When we are like feeling disabled, when we are feeling completely impeded, when we feel like we can't do things, we've got to turn our attention to the environment. You know, how able is that environment to include us? How inclusive is it? How do we make it more inclusive? How do we advocate for ourselves and one another to make those environments more inclusive? Because we might be capable of more than we think. The participants in this study described in the absence of stress and in a fully inclusive environment, they were literally able to do more than they think, more than they thought they could. And finally, yeah, I snuck an extra article in here. So sue me. (laughs) So finally, Forber Pratt and colleagues in 2017, they did a systematic review of the literature. Uh, They called this article disability identity development. They found 41 articles all about kind of Uh, the ability, how people develop a disabled identity and advocate for themselves. And they find five kind of key things that people can do. The first, gain a deeper understanding and acceptance of our own disability, leading to positive self-perception and self-acceptance. Two, Learn from the experiences and perspectives of others with disabilities, which can help challenge social stereotypes and promote a more positive and accurate understanding of our disability. 3. Develop a sense of pride and identity as a member of the disability community, fostering a stronger connection to a shared culture, history and advocacy. Four access resources, information, and support networks that can assist in navigating the challenges and barriers associated with disability in non-inclusive environments. And five, engage in collective action and advocacy to to promote disability rights, inclusion, and social change. The problems that we are facing are societal, they're systemic. We can make a world more inclusive when together we come together to solve one problem we solve the next problem we solve the next and if we solve enough problems of inclusion together then we get to thrive and maybe do more than we thought we could thanks so much for joining me this is sciencing the shit out of ms you are very very welcome here and i look forward to seeing you as always in the next one